Our text this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. So if you'd like to be turning there, if you happen to be using one of your pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 571. If you're just joining us for the first time this morning, let me add my welcome to you as well. We're glad you're with us. Um, And you're here on the second week of a new series on worship, and we're calling the series Vital Worship, because the two meanings of the English word vital point us to something that is vital is something that's uh, essential, incredibly important, central. Something that's vital is also something that is life-giving, and and that's what worship is to be for us. So we're going to take most of this semester to talk about worship. Last week we looked at the call to worship, and we talked about the fact that when we gather to worship, or in any context of our lives, it it is always God who makes the first move. It's God who speaks the first word. It's God who invites us into worship, into lives of worship, into this morning of worship together. And this week we're going to be looking at the confession of sin from Isaiah chapter 6. So let's pray together and then we'll, we'll go to the text. Please pray with me. Lord, we pray that this morning you would open up your word to us and open up our hearts to your word. We're in need of you. We're a people in need of confession, whether we realize it or not, because we are a people who are broken. We're broken by the effects of our own sin. We're broken by the effects of sin against us. We live in a world that is ravaged by sin and brokenness. And so this topic of confession lies right at the very heart of what we need to hear from you. So would you speak to us? And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8, and you'll recognize that from our uh, confession of sin and call to confession this morning. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. The word of the Lord is given for our good and for his glory. All right, let me ask you a question. When you think about this idea of confession and confession of sin, what are some of the images or thoughts that come to mind? We talk about Christians confessing. Maybe uh, this is something you're very familiar with. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're not, and, and, and you've got some pictures of what this must all be about. Um, maybe you've got that caricatured picture of you know, the stereotypical Puritan, of the you know, dour and scowling and legalistic and sort of joyless. You think a confession, it must be something like that. 
Or maybe you think about somebody who's uh, speaking about confessing, somebody who's struck with this sort of t- terminal low self-esteem, right? They can, all they can talk about is the junk. Um, what do you think of when you think about confession? And, and is it something that, when you think of it, that brings any sense of life or even, dare say, it, any sense of joy? Is that something that would even come to mind when we think about confession? Well, that's what we're talking about this morning. If you look, just again, as we will be in detail in a moment, at this life of Isaiah and this picture of Isaiah's life, what does confession do to him? Well, I'm struck that um, it finds him unawares. It comes in and rocks his life with his vision of God, and then it leaves him at the very end being sent out into mission for God. In other words, you know, even if you look at the things that Isaiah says here, he starts with, woe is me, and he ends with, here I am, send me. Something amazing is happening in Isaiah's life through the experience of confession. If you were to ask Isaiah what he thought about confession, he would not find it something uh, stifling and joyless and oppressive. It is something that brings him life, and it's meant to bring us life as well. You see, confession and forgiveness pushes Isaiah into life and not away from it. It's far removed from making him dour and anemic because confession for Isaiah and confession for us brings us life because it connects us to the goodness and the grace of Jesus. That's what confession does. We're going to look at it this morning. Uh, Let me read you a a quote from uh, uh, Christian theologian and counselor Paul Tripp. It says, people often live with huge gaps in their understanding of the gospel. One gap is in understanding how the comfort of the gospel radically changes our approach to life here and now. Daily confession of sin is essential to a gospel-driven lifestyle. It makes no sense to rationalize, to blame shift, or rewrite history to make myself look better. This is a denial of the gospel. Self-examination and confession flow out of a deep confidence that Christ's work is effective for me today. I come to him confident that he forgives me. And that's what we're going to see about confession. That it does not shut down our relationship with God. In fact, it opens it up even more gloriously. So we're going to see that confession, and here's the point for today, is this, uh, it's a countercultural lifestyle of owning up to the truth about ourselves as sinners and our absolute dependence on the grace of God. It's telling the truth about ourselves. And we see it in three ways here in Isaiah 6. It begins with seeing God as glorious, because that's what Isaiah does. And it leads us to this acknowledgement of ourselves as sinners, as owning that reality for ourselves, which is what happens to Isaiah. And it drives us to receiving God's provision for us, which is exactly where Isaiah went. So, seeing God as glorious and acknowledging ourselves as sinners and receiving what God has provided for us. Okay, first, seeing God as glorious. This uh, passage opens up, as we said, our worship always opens up. Last week when we talked about the call to worship. This passage opens up with a vision of God. It starts that way. This whole passage of Isaiah begins with him seeing a picture of God, and a certain picture of God, him on a throne, him in all his majesty. This act of confession for Isaiah begins with him looking not at himself and not at the people around him, but looking at God. And he sees him in his majesty, verses 1, 2, 5. Look at the images that are used. He sees God on a throne, and he sees God called king, 
called the Lord of hosts, the Lord of God's hosts of his people and his army of angels, God in his majesty. It says that he's attended by these seraphim, these angels with these wings that are covering themselves and flying. And the Hebrew word for seraphim literally means burning ones. Something he saw of the majesty of these attendants of God surrounding God in his throne. As the, as the train of his robe fills the temple, this point of contact between God and his people. The majesty of this picture, it is hard for us to grasp, isn't it? I mean, we don't really have much of an equivalent for them. I mean, we certainly have our God, but as far as a cultural equivalent, for the first hearers of this, they would have, they would have known about the king and what it meant to enter into the king's presence. We don't really have a cultural figure that really fits that bill anymore. Now, for us, maybe the closest we get is to think about political figures or our president or some leader like that. But, but we're, you know, we're jaded Americans, right? And we're used to people in power lying to us and deceiving us and spinning the information, changing their course of action And oftentimes we end up feeling betrayed. It's hard for us to picture maybe what is pictured here. And so maybe we just have to go and try to enter in as best we can to this picture of a king. Very unlike anything we've ever experienced. A king who does not abuse his power but uses it for the good of his people. A king who never lies. A king who never deceives. And a king who is not morally fallen and Exactly the opposite, a king who is high and lifted up. That is what the seraphim are crying out, holy, holy, holy. And if you uh, were writing something you wanted to lend emphasis to it, what would you do? You'd you'd italicize it, you'd underline it, you'd say God was very holy. Okay, None of those were live options in Hebrew. The way you emphasize things was to repeat it. Do you see the same thing in the New Testament with Jesus when he says, truly, truly, I say to you. What's he saying? He's emphasizing, he's drawing your attention to it. And this is the only place in Scripture where we see God described this way with something repeated and said three times. Holy, holy, holy. Okay, Isaiah wants us to know something significant about God. And the seraphim are up there proclaiming this incredible central reality about who this God is, that he is holy. Holiness uh, defined by one commentator uh, he says this, holy, God's holiness is, is his total and unique moral majesty. Unstained. You know, we tend to think about God as sort of a better version of ourselves. You know? and God's holiness tells us he is completely other. He's not simply, uh, you know, the, the grand old grandfather in the sky who does things right. He is our holy God. Majestic. He's a king on the throne. And so for us, as with Isaiah... If we're ever going to be people who confess, if we're ever going to be people who see the need to actually tell the truth about ourselves, it's got to begin here with seeing God. With knowing above all else, we are a people who live our lives in the sight of God. Because you know what it's like when you look around and compare yourself with everyone else around you. You know, I'm not quite as good as he is, but I'm doing a lot better than that guy is, right? Not the best, I certainly wouldn't say that, but hey... I'm trying hard. I'm doing a lot better than these guys around me. What does Isaiah look to? Not himself, not the people around him. He looks to God and sees God. Holy, holy, holy. His eyes are fixed there. And that is what brings him to confess. Because he knows that compared to God, we are all people desperately in need of confession 
So that leads him to our second point, acknowledging ourselves as sinners. That's what happens with him. The first part of this is seeing our true condition. Look at the way this plays out for Isaiah in his statement. He says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Unclean lips. Uh, What's going on? Well, it is one small picture into a life of uncleanness. It's interesting. Jesus kind of points us in this direction. Mark 7, listen to what he says. Jesus says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, from the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. What does he say? Everything that comes out of us in our actions, in our words, through our lips, what do they do? They point us straight to a heart that is broken, gone wrong, and has become a fountain of these things spewing out of our lives. In the words of the Bible, it points us to a heart that's in the grip of sin. It says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Even my words, even my words are broken and fallen. And he goes on, he says, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He says, this is my problem and I am surrounded by it. We are in this deal together. We are a culture and a world gone wrong, a people with unclean lips. And as he says this, notice that Isaiah owns up to the real deal. No blame shifting, no minimizing of his sin, no trying to polish himself up and make himself look better. The kinds of things we say, I'm a man of unclean lips, but you should have heard what they said to me. Or, you know, I'm a man of unclean lips, but uh, you wouldn't believe the kind of stuff that I have to put up with. Right? I'm a man of unclean lips, but you'd have unclean lips too if you had to deal with this person in your life. Right? Sure, it's true, but. And none of that from Isaiah. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I'm surrounded, I'm in this with everybody, by a people of unclean lips. doesn't attempt to sugarcoat his sin and his condition. Uh, a number of years ago, I knew a student who had, who had come up with this brilliant answer to that interview question, whether you're interviewing for graduate school or for a job. There's usually some version of this question. You know, what is your greatest weakness? What's your greatest weakness? So, uh, you know, the student I knew uh, came up with the perfect answer, said, ah, my greatest weakness is that I'm a perfectionist. I mean, that's one of those where it sort of sounds like you're confessing something, but you know the employer's like, score. <laughs> what I need is more employees that are perfectionists that are going to get this job done. You know, even in our weakness, we are strong, right? What does Isaiah say? You know, I sometimes let a wrong word fly or, you know, occasionally I don't live up to my own ideals. No, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, no blame shifting, no polishing his image. Now, when we confess, what are we talking about and how do we experience it? Let me just say briefly, we experience this in in two different ways in the course of your life if you're someone who's a Christian. When someone first comes to faith in Jesus, then a part of that is that they confess their sins and turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. There's this incredible transition and change that happens in life when you turn away from your sin and to Jesus. Now, many of us, though, following Jesus would say, you know, that happened for me at some particular point in my life. You know, I be, I, I'm somebody who's put my faith in Jesus. I've, I've turned from my sin in that sense. I've, uh, in the words of the Bible, I've crossed over from death into life. What does confession mean, though, 
in an ongoing sense in the lives of Christians. Well, the Bible's clear that as believers, too, we are people who continue to confess. Okay, if you think about our confession of sin this morning from Psalm 51, that is the words of David after, as God's anointed king, a follower of God, someone who has then committed adultery and committed murder. And what does he do to God? He comes and confesses. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. What's he saying? God, I am yours. And yet I continue to struggle with sin grievously in this case. Would you forgive me? James 5.16 says it this way to Christians. He says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Jesus puts us in the regular pattern of prayer in the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew 6, one of the lines says this. Forgive us of our debts. As we forgive those, as we have forgiven those uh, who are in debt against us. So, what's going on? Well, we need to be very clear here because, as we said, when someone comes to faith for the first time in Christ, they go in a very real way from death to life. Images the Bible uses for this uh, the Bible speaks of uh, being adopted into God's family. Romans 8, Paul uses this image. He says, You know, you used to be on the outside and God was your judge, and now you're adopted in, and God is your father now. And that is a relationship that can never be broken. But what does happen for these people, for us who are brought into the family? Well, listen to the way the Westminster Confession says this in its chapter on justification, which is the term for God's saving of us, his irrevocable saving of us. It says this, God continues to forgive the sins of those who are justified. And although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may by their sins fall under God's fatherly displeasure. Okay, what does that mean? Before knowing Jesus, you, God was your judge and now he is your father. Okay, is it, possible, is it possible to have a relationship that is strained with your father? Of course it is. If you have children or if you think about your own relationship with your parents, and let's say, let's say you grew up, which might or might not have been the case, in a good and solid and loving home. I understand that's not the case for many of us. But let's just say even best case scenario. What happens? What happens when you do wrong as a child or when your child does wrong against you, when your child sins? What happens when your child shakes that rebellious fist or when that child doesn't obey what you called them to do or when we've done that to our parents? Is everything fine? No. If you're the kid, you might think so. But your parents don't think so. What has happened? There has been a strain in relationship. Okay, let's say you were the offender. You are still the child of your father, an unbreakable relationship. But there is now a relational in, uh, issue, a strain, a tension that's been brought in. And you know what, the, how that affects the intimacy of your relationship with your earthly father, right? If you have sinned against your father, then you know until that is confessed and made right, there is always going to be this tension or this strain. And maybe strain is a good word for that. Um, for those of you that are athletes or something like an athlete, I, I occasionally at periods of my life call myself a runner. And uh, on more than one occasion, I've hurt myself. And you, maybe you know what this is like to strain a muscle. Okay? And so when you're running, you strain a muscle. Every step you take, there's this limp. You know, something is just not quite right. There's something that needs to be healed. Still a runner, but one that, one that is strained. That's what happens when we 
sin as believers against our Father. There's relational strain. Let me give you another picture of that. Uh, one of my own children who remain nameless at this point to protect this person's young identity uh, has gotten into this phase where uh, when I, I, I tell my child do something and they don't want to do it, they say, no, I won't, and I won't love you. Now, I'm sure they must have picked that up in nursery or something. I don't, I don't know where they got that. <laughs> What's my child saying to me? I won't love you. What are we saying to God when we sin? I don't trust you. I won't love you. I won't love you here. Not in a love that means obedience. I won't love you. What does our Heavenly Father say to us? Same thing I say to my child. Ah, but I love you. And I'm not going to let you get away. Not just not get away with it, but not get away. You are my child. You are a part of this family, and I love you. And this relationship is going to be healed. We're not going to let this sit out on the table between us. It's going to be made right. So we as believers, when we come and confess, what are we doing? We're owning up to the relational strain. We're coming to no longer our judge, but our heavenly father, saying, I have done wrong. Would you forgive me? He goes on, Isaiah goes on, not simply to recognize it, but to own up to the implications of his sin. Because confession begins with insight, a recognition of our true condition, but doesn't stop there. And you know what it's like when the process stops for you or someone else only with insight. Okay, when you, let's say you've had to confront somebody about something they've done wrong, and they intellectually acknowledge what they've done wrong, but it, it turns out playing out something like this. Uh, when you explain this to someone and their response is something like, well, that's just the way I am. You know? I know. I'm sorry, Elizabeth. I'm grumpy in the morning. It's just the way I am. Get used to it. Uh, you know, I, I, I know that for, for you maybe, you know, I, I, know I, can be, I know I can be gruff. I know it can be difficult. I know I, I've hurt your feelings. But the truth is I'm just a straight talker, and I'm, that's just the way I am. You know? When... Our confession ends with insight and does not move us to the implications of our sin that we are people who really care and confess. True confession is insight plus repentance. Insight plus turning. Insight plus real confession of our sin. See, Isaiah has a problem. Not that he has a poor self-image, but that for the first time he's seen him, first time perhaps he's seen himself truly and accurately, and he knows that he has a core problem, this relational break with God. And his confession is not anonymous, just as our confession is never meant to be anonymous. Uh, if you were to go online, uh, and you, you'd find a number of websites that w- where you can log on and, and you can write anonymously confessions of your sin and post them. Uh, on, on the internet, on these sites, so that other people can read them. So you can say what, is, what you've done and what is true of you, but what, what is going on here? It's, it's insight. It's a confession of a thing, but it is anonymous, and true confession is never anonymous because confession leads us beyond insight to actual relational healing. And when Isaiah confesses, it's not in the abstract and it's not in the anonymous. He is before the face of God, and he is confessing to God, the one whom he has offended, Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. Has our sin brought us to this point? Does it ever? Well, we don't end there. Isaiah sees this glory of God and he leads him to acknowledge his sin. 
And then what we see next in the passage is Isaiah receiving God's provision for him. Okay, last few verses. Uh, this, what for us culturally is this very strange scene. Okay, what happens? He, he confesses, woe is me, I'm a, I'm a man of unclean lips. Uh, and again, this, this, this woe is me when he says, uh, when he says uh, I am lost. Other translations uh, will say, I am undone. I am silenced. Woe is me, I am undone. The next thing that happens, one of these seraphim, it it takes tongs and he goes to the altar. And the picture here is God's presence in the temple where there was an altar where sin was atoned for. And he goes and he takes uh, tongs and he takes a burning coal out of that altar. Now what's going on here? Why does he go there? Well, because the altar was a central point by which God's people understood that uh, my sin is not okay. In fact, it is so bad that something has to actually pay for it. In fact, it is so bad that someone's blood has to actually be shed so that I can be forgiven. And throughout the Old Testament, you get these, this ongoing sacrificial system by which the people brought these sacrificial animals to be killed in their stead so they would know God's forgiveness. Now, interestingly, when you get to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, we see that all these pictures of of this sacrificial system actually point to one sacrifice. Not to the blood of sheep and goats, but to the blood of Jesus shed for us. Because that is the news of Scripture, that it was this bad, that God had to send His own Son, perfect in every way, never sinning, to come, that He might live a perfect life, and that He might die in our stead. Our sin is so serious. The only way it can be forgiven is to be covered by the blood of another. And the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 9. It talks about Jesus being a high priest. It says that when Christ appeared as a high priest, that he went into the greater and more perfect tent, not the tabernacle, not the temple that Isaiah sees, But he says the more perfect tent of heaven. He entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus uh, securing for us an eternal redemption. What's it saying? He's saying all these pictures of sacrifice point to Jesus, his sacrifice for us. Our sin was of that magnitude that God himself and the person of his son and to shed his blood that we might be forgiven. And that is what Isaiah is left with. The seraphim going over, taking a tong from that, with the tongs, taking a coal from that altar, representing that kind of work and atonement that had to be done for his sin, that kind of drastic measure that had to take place for him to be forgiven. He takes a coal and he brings it over and he puts it on his lips. Isn't that amazing? Because at the very point of Isaiah's confessed need, I am a man of unclean lips. God sends his angel with this coal and puts it on his lips, the very point of his need, and he says, I have healed you here. I have forgiven you even here. The very point of your confessed need, my grace for you meets you right there. Now, what has Isaiah done in this process? Nothing. How is his sin atoned for? What has he done for that? Absolutely nothing. He confesses and stands there. And God sends an angel and a coal and forgiveness and healing without Isaiah lifting a finger. 
And this is an incredibly important point. That God makes the move towards us. That He brings forgiveness to us. Nothing Isaiah had to do. Nothing he had to go earn. No penance he had to go fulfill. What does God say? The only way you are going to be saved is if I freely forgive you through Jesus. Because there is nothing you can do to cover your own sin. Now, let me just ask it by way of ap- application a couple points. Okay, so that's a picture we get of Isaiah. And his experience of confession begins with this incredibly majestic picture of God on his throne. And he's undone by it. And he acknowledges what is true about himself. I'm not simply a guy who struggles. I'm a guy who is racked with sin and I am in desperate need of forgiveness. And then God meets him at that very point of need and provides for his need for healing and salvation. He does all of that for him. Now, how does that kind of work out for us in our own struggles in, in regards to confession? Well, let, let me just let me throw out just a few things and they're a little bit caricatured. Maybe you'll find yourself somewhere remotely like one of these. Maybe you are somebody who's essentially unbothered even by the concept of sin. Okay, maybe, I mean, it could be any of us. You know, maybe you just sort of wandered in here this morning. Maybe this is in some ways the first time you're hearing it, or maybe it's the 10,000th, and you still think at the end of the day, I'm just, I mean, I'm not sure it's all that bad. Because maybe, again, what you find is you look at yourself, you think, you know, I do some stuff, but I don't do that stuff. You know, I struggle a little more than this person, but, uh, you know, I'm looking pretty good compared to all of them. After all, no one is perfect. Well, you're almost right. There is only one who is. And that is the one who has captured Isaiah's vision. Holy, 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 the Lord God of hosts. And if this is where you find yourself, then I would just encourage you that you've never come face to face with this picture of this holy, majestic God. And all it took was a glimpse at him for Isaiah to understand just how significant his sin really is. So unbothered by your sin or sin at all, maybe this is you and maybe this is me at times too. Maybe you're hard and judgmental. Uh, because it, it plays out this way. Everywhere you look in your life, you, the dominant sense you have is that you are being wronged by the people around you. People around you at work just can't get it right. Your own family members certainly can't get it right. Your good friends let you down. And you are very conscious of the sins of others around you and maybe towards you. And they might be even real sins. Maybe you find it this way. Every disagreement, every argument you find yourself in, and you find yourself in quite a few, is really all about the other person's failings. It's always about their fault. You are always in the right. And people around you, whether it's your friends, your spouse, your kids, never feel like they quite measure up in your eyes. Well, let me say for us too, those of us that find ourselves in that boat, maybe we too don't understand the depth or the heights of God's glory, but unlike Isaiah, maybe we don't understand the depths of our sin. Maybe we have not had that woe-is-me moment and that I-am-undone moment. Jesus interacted with somebody like this in Luke 7. He goes to the party of a, a Pharisee named Simon, and Pharisees were kind of the religious professionals of the day, the guys who were trying really hard to get it right. 
And as they're having this meal, uh, this woman comes in, this, this prostitute or, or newly ex-prostitute comes in, weeping, and goes to Jesus' feet, crying over his feet, and pulls out this very expensive perfume and pours it on his feet. And everybody's just astounded at this seemingly wasteful action. And the host, this Pharisee, thinks to himself, doesn't Jesus know what kind of woman this is who's touching him right now? Jesus turns to him, and here's what he says to this Pharisee. He says, a certain moneylender has two debtors. One owned one owed 500 denarii and another 50. And when he could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And Jesus goes on and says to Simon, he who is, who is forgiven little loves little. What's Jesus' point? That some people need a little bit of forgiveness and a little bit of love and others need a lot? No. His point is some people understand they need a lot of forgiveness and other people just don't. They think they only need a little. They look at this majestic God and they see, I'm falling a little bit short. Rather than the clear-eyed vision that Isaiah said, he said, woe is me, I am undone. And what's Jesus' point for Simon the Pharisee and Jesus' point maybe for many of us? What does he say? You are just like this person weeping at my feet, unbelievably in need of my goodness and grace, unbelievably estranged from me, aside from my work for you. And until you grasp that, you will love me little. And when you do, you will love me with your whole life. So maybe some of us are hard and judgmental. Or lastly, maybe some of us find ourselves despondent and joyless. We talk about confession and this woe is me, and you feel like that is what I live in. I know that's true of me. But maybe for you, that's all that you see is true of you. Because maybe you don't understand what Isaiah goes on to see, which is, this atonement for his sin, this work of God that meets him right at the point of his brokenness and need, the point right at which Jesus says to us too, I forgive you. And maybe if you find yourself despondent and joyless, you have been unable to hear those words. And maybe it's because you've never grasped the gospel for the first time. That our sin is not the end of the story in Jesus, but his goodness and his love and his forgiveness are. Or maybe you find yourself in the place where you've known and tasted that before, but you just feel like you cannot get a hold of it now. Something in your life is too far gone, too strained, too hard, that we need to hear it again. Jesus' word, you are forgiven. In the words of Isaiah, your sin is atoned for. And Isaiah heard that message. Because what happens next, as we said at the very beginning, this experience of Isaiah that begins with, woe is me, ends with, at the very end there, here I am, send me. I have experienced the goodness and forgiveness of the Lord. Lord, send me that I might be an agent of that in other people's lives as well. Same thing that happened in, in Psalm 51. Again, our confession of sin this morning we've already referred to. David, after confessing his sin, says this, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. And then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will return to you. What does he say? 
Heal me that I might go speak of your goodness to a broken world that needs to hear this very same thing. And where does David end and where does Isaiah end? Not dour and spent, but joyful and forgiven and alive in a way they had not been before. Restored in relationship to their God. The strain healed. Able to run with no fear and no pain forgiven by their God. That's what is offered to us in confession. That's why we confess every week together. This is why as believers we confess during the week. We keep short accounts with God. We come and say what is true. And look again to Jesus, the one who forgives us. There might be no strain. We might enjoy and rest in what is always true for God's people, His forgiveness and love for you, secured for us in Jesus. Confession opens up joy for us. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that that would be our experience as well. That as we confess, we would be driven by the gospel. That we would see your welcoming arms. That, that for us in Jesus, we no longer face you as judge, but as Father. May we run to confess. May it be our joy to confess as we continue to step away from the death we often choose for the life that you have secured for us in Jesus. Would you fill our hands with joy and life and words to speak to the world around us that we might teach sinners your ways, that we might point them to to this fountain of grace that we have found in Jesus and more truly this fountain of grace that you have brought to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.